0: Elijah is in the category of what I think were the greatest men that ever walked the earth. And then again, 300 more times in the New Testament. God is telling us that this same Jesus who has come is coming again. If it doesn't come to pass, it doesn't come from God. If it's not accurate, the prophet is to be executed. God said there's coming a day when I'm going to shake the world. But something will not be shaken. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Glad to be with you one more time in this study. Hey, after tonight, you did it. You did all eight sessions of this prophecy series, Understanding Bible Prophecy. Now, that doesn't make you an expert. It doesn't make me an expert either, Uh, but we've had some fun in here, and I had to get out the big guns tonight. My tablet kind of conked out on me over there, and so I was fortunate that I had my laptop in my bag, and so I grabbed that so I've got my notes in front of me after all. But we're going to wrap this study up tonight. We've been talking about a lot of stuff. Is that true? Yeah, an overwhelming amount of content, but that's because when 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 your Bible is comprised, when 40% of it makes up this topic of predictive prophecy, you can't take that lightly. There's a lot to explore right there, and you don't want to know what I think about it all. I think you guys can handle it. I think this Wednesday night crowd can handle it. A lot of places you could be midweek and you're right here. And that's only because you are ravenous for the word of God. And so I'm grateful for you. Don't stop being hungry for God's word. Amen. So we're going to, we're going to keep talking about prophecy even after tonight because it does make up 40% of our Bible. And so when you've got a percentage of scripture that covers that content, you don't stop talking about it, nor should you. It's going to find its way into a lot of sermons, and uh, I would also add there's plenty more content for us to delve into. Uh, don't forget our Q&A next week, our Prophecy Q&A, and you can still submit, uh, submit questions uh, for that, questions at thelambschapel.org, and, and we're happy to look at those and address those. It's going to be fun next week. But we've looked at some important foundations, really just some principles. For understanding Bible prophecies, you get near the uh, New Testament after we've looked at some Old Testament uh, passages, we approach a book like Revelation, you stand a much better chance of understanding that if you have your head around Daniel, around Ezekiel. As we looked at those, we've studied the dispensations of God, the ages by which God has governed man across time. We've looked at the importance of Israel, uh, God's covenant with Israel. Uh, We've looked at the distinction between Israel and the church. We've talked about what the future holds for Israel. Uh, Will she return to her Messiah? The answer is yes. When will that be? Uh, It's going to be in a a day yet to come during the tribulation. We've talked about Israel's enemies, what will become of them. And We looked last week in Ezekiel 38 and 39 at an invasion called the, uh, the invasion of Gog and Magog. And uh, we looked at the times of the Gentiles, all of those Gentile world empires that have arisen, uh, that have come and gone throughout history, and there's one yet to come, and it's coming in the future, and it's going to be a revived Roman empire. And we talked about all of that, but I felt that a, a fun, exciting way to wrap all this up, this study, is to look at an event called the rapture. And we're going to look at the coming of the Lord. And throughout recent church history, this concept called the rapture has gone through periods of wild popularity. Uh, it's it's in terms of interest, it's gone through uh, periods of disdain and uh, dismissal by Christians in some quarters who look at that doctrine with kind of a skeptical eye. I've encountered both perspectives in my lifetime. When I was a kid, uh, my dad, who was a pastor. He showed a Christian movie in our church called A Thief in the Night. Has anybody ever heard of A Thief? You remember A Thief in the Night? We got a lot of old timers in here. Uh, a Thief in the Night. Now, the, you know, Christian film in the early days was not all that impressive, it's got a lot better over the years. This is back in the 70s, so the production quality was quite low. The acting was a little eh. Uh, The script was kind of iffy. I'm not sure the doctrine was all that sound, but I'll tell you one thing. It scared the bejeebers out of me. It freaked me out because it was about the rapture. And I, I remember watching that movie as a kid, and then I went home, and one Saturday morning, I woke up. I rubbed the sleep out of my eyes, and I got up, and I'm walking through the house, and I'm calling for mom and dad, and they're nowhere to be found, and my little brother is gone, and I didn't know where they were, and it freaked me out, because I thought the rapture came, and I'd been left behind, you know, and that Larry Norman song started playing in my head, wish we'd all been ready, you know, uh, you know, speaking of left behind, so many of you have read those books, those novels, very, very popular back in the 90s by Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, about the earth's last days and people left on planet earth after uh, the rapture and had to live out during the tribulation. Very, very popular. And what happens when a doctrinal concept becomes mainstream in the church and is uh, given the pop culture treatment? And uh, the majority of the evangelical church kind of undergoes a a vast consumption of this concept via uh, popular fiction and media. What happens is years later, people in the church look back on that. And time has a way of making us all skeptical as we get older. We kind of look back with a wary eye and sometimes people say, can you believe we used to buy that? Can can you believe we used to talk about all that stuff? And then people get exposed to different doctrinal uh, backgrounds, different religious perspectives on issues and they get a little uppity about things and they start to disparage a concept like the rapture. Well, where are we to fall on this issue? Are we to get swept up in the pop culture, or are we to uh, be dismissive and skeptical about an issue like this? Well, I want to land where the Bible is. That's where I want to land. I want to know, what does the Scripture say on this topic? Is the rapture in Scripture? What does it say about it? Well, in your notes, as we get started tonight, what I want you to know is that the, the, the rapture, this event is the first phase of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look tonight at what I consider to be the biblical view of the rapture. And we're going to draw primarily from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be all over the place, but that's going to be our primary text tonight. And there are two phases. I'll just let you know that. There are two phases of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is the first phase, the rapture of the church. That's phase one. And that is the Lord coming for his church. Phase two, uh, you could call that the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that is the Lord coming with his church. you got a book in the back of your Bible called Revelation. If you have a very, very old King James Bible, it might be called Revelation of St. John the Divine. Hogwash. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ because at the at the end of that book he's going to be revealed and he is going to come with his church and he will do battle with the antichrist and he will in short order establish his kingdom on the earth and so that's going to be phase 2 of his one coming the rapture is going to be phase 1 and we also call this the blessed hope paul writes in titus 2:13 he says we're waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the rapture, in your notes, is the formal end of the period of grace. That's the period that we're in right now. We call this the church age. The period of grace. The rapture will bring this age to a close. We've talked about a variety of ages throughout history, but the one we're in right now is that period called the age of grace, where grace has been made available to more than just the Jew, right? He's opened up his plan of redemption to all us Gentiles around the world, and I'm grateful for that. And this will bring that to a close, this, this event called the rapture. Now, that doesn't mean that there will be no more grace available. It does not mean that once the rapture happens that nobody can come to faith in Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary, but it will be very difficult following the rapture for the world to come to faith because the primary gospel witness in the world today is the body of Christ, is the church. And if the church is taken from the earth, then the principal witness for the gospel is no longer present, but people will still come to faith. How will that Occur. Well, there's going to be another witness in those days for Jesus Christ. Ironically, it's going to be the nation of Israel, which is amazing to think about. But in your notes, I also want you to see that this thing called the rapture will usher in the period called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, all right? That's also called in Isaiah the day of the vengeance of our God, The day of the Lord. For 20 centuries, God has stayed his hand of judgment. He has offered mercy. And then the church is going to be taken out. And that will commence a period called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord really just refers to all the events of the end times. Everything from the rapture through the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay? And often when the day of the Lord is spoken of, what is in view are the judgments of that take place during that swath of time and the, the judgments that people fixate on happen to be the judgments of the seven-year tribulation. And so often when you talk about the day of the Lord, what is, what is being thought of is the tribulation period. But that's the day of the Lord, and the rapture is going to usher that in. The rapture is not the the starting point of the tribulation, but it will begin this, this season of time called the day of the Lord. But history is all going somewhere, and the rapture, I really, really believe, is foundational to your understanding of history and of prophecy. And so you need to understand it. If you're a Christian, it is worth your time. It is worth your study. You should know about the timing. You should know about the sequence. You should know about the details, and you should know about the purpose, the how, the when, the why. Why is this foundational? Because it refers to the church, which means it has to do with the ages of God and of man and the church's distinction from Israel. Very, very important topic Let's pray and dive in. I cannot wait. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time in your word tonight. Lord, we thank you for this study that we've had, how fruitful it has been. And so I pray that as we wrap it up, we'd be filled with hope. We thank you that at the end of your book, at the end of the Bible, God, uh, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And that excites us, Lord, and we are trusting and believing on that. And uh, would you inspire us and motivate us and give us hope tonight as we study. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, the rapture is not an invention of Tim LaHaye in, Beth Be- in Left Behind. It is an ancient biblical doctrine. I want to talk first about the sequence and the details of the rapture. and We're going to walk through 1 Thessalonians 4, but you need to understand in your notes that the rapture is the future event when Jesus Christ will descend from heaven to do two things, two things. First, in your notes, Christ will resurrect the bodies of deceased believers. He will resurrect the bodies of deceased believers, okay? That is job one of the rapture. And we know that from 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. This is Paul. He's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Let me give you the context here. Uh, The Thessalonians are concerned. They're worried. Why? Because there were rumors going around that the day in which they were living was, in fact, the day of the Lord, that they were going through this day of wrath. They believed that they were living through the end times, and they knew when that happens, it's only a matter of time. It's going to be soon when the Lord is going to come and establish his kingdom. And the reason they're worried is not because of what they're going through. They're tough. Okay? They're up for it. They are worried because they've got loved ones who have died. Christian loved ones, okay? You got Uncle Joe and Aunt Betty. They are deceased. They love Jesus, but they're dead, and Jesus is going to come back and establish his kingdom, and Uncle Joe and Aunt Betty are going to miss out, and they were worried about that. What of them, they say, and so... Uh, Paul is writing to them to put their mind at ease. And I want you to notice that this is a prophetic message that he offers them in this context. And so what that means is that prophecy is meant to comfort. Okay? Bible prophecy is not meant to scare us. It's meant to prepare us. Don't be scared. Be prepared. And so he says, I'm writing because I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. Some other versions say, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Warren Wiersbe says that's the largest denomination in the world, the ignorant brethren. <laughs> All right? Uh, what does he not want them to be uninformed about? He says about those who are asleep. Okay? Very important phrase. If you got your Bible open, I would underline that. What does that refer to? In your notes, those who are asleep refers to the believing loved ones who have died. If you've got a Christian uh, who has passed away that you know, that you cared about, all right, Paul would say that is someone who has fallen asleep. He always refers to Christians who have physically died as having fallen asleep. In the mind of Paul, Christians don't die. They just go to sleep. Why does he put it that way? Because when you go to sleep, hopefully, what will happen eventually? You're going to wake up. You're going to awaken. So that is the expectation, There's an awakening coming. Why does he want them to know about this? Because he says, I want you to know this, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Is it true that Christians grieve differently from the world? We mourn in a different way. If you've been to a funeral where the, the person who has passed away was a believer and the family was primary believers, that's, that's a very different experience than when you go to a memorial for a, an unbeliever whose family is made up of unbelievers. Very, very different. I've been to both, right? And I've been to one where the believer, where the, the departed was a believer, but there are unbelievers in attendance, okay? It wasn't that long ago, a few years back, I went to my grandmother's. Uh, funeral, and of course she knew Jesus. A lot of us in the family are Christians, but there were people in attendance who were not. And the way that we grieved was very different from the way that they grieved. And you could just tell we grieved in accordance with the hope that we understood and we we knew that grandma knew Jesus and so she was presently with Jesus. And it it was an open casket funeral. I'm not a huge fan of those. I understand some people need that kind of closure. I don't particularly like them personally because when you got that casket open, that ain't grandma, right? That's that's just the candy shell, the peanuts in heaven, amen? (laughs) And so we grieve differently. And Paul says in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All right, a couple things. First of all, Paul says we believe that Jesus died and rose again. How many of you believe Jesus died and rose again? Do you need to believe that in order to be a Christian? Yes. Yes, you do. That is fundamental right there. That's essential truth, salvation truth. You've got to believe he physically died, he physically rose. And now, connected to our belief in those facts, Paul will connect this belief that those who are in Christ will also rise again, okay? So in your notes, Paul logically connects to the belief of Christ's death and resurrection, the belief that departed Christians will return with him when he comes. Okay? They're going to come with Christ, who is risen. And if they're going to come with him, that means spiritually they're with him right now. They can't come with him unless they're already with him now. Because you believe, as a born-again Christian, that Jesus died and rose physically, Paul says you must also believe that when he comes, he will bring the souls of departed believers. Why will he bring them? Because there is a resurrection waiting for them. There's a resurrection waiting for them. They're going to be uh, resurrected. Now, they're not resurrected yet. Okay, They're with him in spirit. In order to be resurrected, you've got to already be with him in spirit. And they are. And in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes this. He says, yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Meaning to be separate from the body is, because of death, that means that you are with Jesus. That's what he means. Philippians 1.23, Paul's imprisoned. What does he say? He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, talking about life and death. He says, my desire is to depart, to die. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That is far better. Tim Keller. Uh, pastor up in New York, recently passed away. I've, I've long admired Tim Keller. Didn't agree with him on everything, but, but knew he loved Jesus beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, he had pancreatic cancer. People prayed for him for a long time. Toward the end, he says, don't pray for me to recover. I just want to be with Jesus. Yeah. I understand that. Paul understood that. Now, Paul goes on to say in that very passage that the, he knows God's not finished with him yet. And so he remains. But he, the point is, he knows death is not the end. That when you die as a Christian, you're with Christ. Uh, For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. He says, how can death be gain? Only if it means that you're gonna be with Jesus can death be gain. That's the best of all possible worlds. But notice these souls are coming back with Christ. They're not resurrected yet. They're with him spiritually. Uh, Sometimes at funerals, have you heard this? Somebody will say about the person in the casket, they'll say, well, you know, so-and-so's not suffering anymore. And they're not. But then they go on and they say, they've got the resurrection body. Is that true? Not yet. Not yet. Uh, those in Christ who pass from this earth, it's true they're not suffering. They don't feel pain. They're not discouraged anymore. They don't contend with any of the earthly maladies that we contend with. Right now, they are with Jesus, best they've ever been. But they don't have the res- resurrection body yet. When do they get it? Right here. In 1 Thessalonians 4, when the Lord comes down, here's the scene. Jesus at this moment, descending from heaven, verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so Paul is saying to these people who are worried that their departed loved ones are missing out on Jesus, he's saying to them, uh, we will not precede those who have died. Why is that important? Because in your notes, they need to know that their deceased loved ones have not missed out. They haven't missed out. Paul's saying they're not missing out. They're with him already. They beat you to him. They're there now. They're with Jesus. You're missing out. You're missing out. You're not going to miss out totally. You're going to get in on this, but they're already there. They're already with him right now. No need to worry. And in verse 16, it says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. I would underline that phrase, a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, let's break this down. You got the Lord coming down. There's a cry of command. What does that mean? A cry of why that turn of phrase? This is something that precedes. The raising of the bodies of those who are dead in Christ. Cry of command. What this means in your notes is that resurrection happens by the authority of Jesus. They are going to rise by the authority of Jesus Christ. There will be a cry of command. How many military folks we got in here? All right. Some of you may have experienced uh, the toot of a bugle. Early in the morning, somebody's blowing, what do they call it? Reveille. What's the point? Get up. He's going to blow a They're going to rise, right? Jesus has always had this power. He's always had this authority. You remember Lazarus? That boy had been in the tomb for four days. You think he was stinking by then? Absolutely. Here comes Jesus, and he says, Lazarus, if it's not too much trouble, we're all out here. We miss you. If, if, if you don't mind, if you got some time, we'd love for you to poke your head out here, and we just want to say hello. Is that what he said? No. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus. He comes right out. Why? Because he was commanded to he was commanded. That's the authority Jesus has. How much authority does he have? Some scholars have said it's a good thing that he said Lazarus's name specifically. Otherwise, every dead guy in the world would have come out of the grave. That's the kind of power Christ has. Well, we saw in verse 14, God will bring with him, with him, those who have fallen asleep. And then in verse 16 you got this cry of command, you got the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, are you confused about that? You may be. Here's what's happening. He's bringing the souls of the dead believers as he comes down, and then there's a cry of command, and then the, what's in the ground? The bodies of the deceased believers. So the souls are with Christ, but their bodies are in the grave. So they're coming down in spirit, their bodies are gonna come up in a resurrection sense. Now what I need you to understand in your notes is that the dead in Christ is limited to the church. That's the dead in Christ, okay? This is not a picture of the Old Testament saints. Moses is not coming down with Jesus at this time. There's no Daniel, there's no David, there's no Abraham, okay? The Old Testament saints are gonna rise later. They got their own separate resurrection. This is the dead in Christ. Those of the church age that we have talked about, everybody that's trusted Jesus over the last age. And so in your notes, the description is of souls descending to unite with resurrected bodies. So those souls have not been raised yet. Their bodies are going to rise and unite with their souls. Very simple. Souls coming down, bodies coming up. Now what kind of bodies are these? They are not decaying bodies. They are not corrupted bodies. They are not skeletal remains. I don't care what state you were in when you died. I don't care if you were blown to smithereens. You will be reconstituted. You will be made whole. You will be perfected. And you will be raised incorruptible at the cry of command on that day. And this is the dead in Christ. And those bodies are new. They are supernatural. They are whole. They are complete. They are perfect. We're going to get into the details of the bodies, uh, what they're like in just a bit. But he's going to resurrect the bodies of departed believers. That's part one of the rapture. Second, in your notes, Christ will transform and translate the bodies of living believers. That's the rest of us. Okay? Meaning... He says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. There's a whole lot in that verse right there. We're going to extract all of it, but we start with this. We who are alive, who are left, meaning in your notes, believers who have lived long enough to see the Lord descend. Wouldn't you love to live long enough to see that? wouldn't you? I mean, either way, you're going to be thrilled. You'll be there no matter what. If you die before then, if you live to see it, you'll be there one way or the other. You'll either see it from the top down or you'll see it from the bottom up. Okay. But you're going to, you're going to be there, but I think it would be pretty cool to see it, uh, to see it, uh, from this side. Uh, now He says that those who are alive who are left, meaning if you haven't died prior, that's who you're talking about. You are being described in that verse. We are going to be what? Caught up. That's how he says it. We're gonna be caught up. Now, there are critics of the rapture doctrine who are quick to point out something about that word rapture. Uh, I recently watched a video. It was by a college professor. Most of the things that aggravate me involve college professors. Um... (laughs) He did a study, a video study on the book of Revelation and for the most part I think it was a pretty good study but he, he had a particular view on the rapture and he took one complete episode of this study in Revelation to debunk the rapture which I thought was a, an interesting choice if your goal is to do a commentary on the book of Revelation which does not explicitly mention the rapture. Why you would take a moment to debunk rapture I thought was curious and in a manner I felt to be a tad smarmy he said let me tell you what I think about the rapture I don't believe in the rapture and here's why the Bible doesn't talk about it and that's what he said now usually what people mean when they say something like that is they mean to say that the word rapture does not appear in scripture is that true well in a sense yes it is true the word rapture The English word rapture does not appear in Scripture. Does that mean that the doctrine is not there? Well, first of all, just because a word doesn't appear in Scripture doesn't mean that that a doctrine to which that word refers is not biblical. There are a lot of concepts that we refer to by a specific word that does not appear in Scripture. Uh, You ever heard the word Trinity? Does that appear in the Bible? No. No. And yet... Do we believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Three persons of the Godhead equal in their divine essence. Do we believe in the Trinity? We do. Oh, but the Word's not in the Bible. No, but there are a lot of passages that we correlate and we let Scripture interpret itself and we, we have discovered a doctrine in the pages of the Word of God that clearly teaches that God is three in one. Well, this is similar to that. Same kind of thing with a word like rapture. Uh, That said, I will say that the criticism that the word rapture does not appear in the Bible is not entirely accurate because this, this phrase caught up, we who are alive and remain will be caught up in verse 17. The Greek word there translated as caught up is the Greek word harpazo, harpazo. And it means to pluck or snatch away. That's what it means. Okay? In your notes, to pluck or snatch away. Harpazo. There are other uh, words that derive from this. In Greek mythology, you've got these female winged creatures that pluck the souls of men. They're the snatchers that carry men off to to, uh, Hades or what have you. What are they called? They're called harpies. Harpazo. The the snatchers. Okay, Uh, A person that plays a harp. How do they play it? They pluck it. Okay? Uh, and so it means to pluck. It means to snatch. And there's a Latin word that comes from harpazo. And it's the word rapio. And rapio in Latin means to forcibly take. To take suddenly. To take swiftly. To snatch away. And we get our English word rapture from the Latin word. Uh, the rapio, the French have derived rapier, a sword that brigands would use to take forcibly what was not theirs. Okay? Uh, our word rape, to forcibly take, comes from rapio. So harpazo means to take violently, to snatch Jesus when he was seized. The word uh, harpazo was used. They plucked him. They took him abruptly. Rapture, uh, rapio, comes from And so uh, is the word in Scripture in a roundabout way? Yes. Yes, it is. Because rapture comes from rapio, which comes from harpazo, which is the word that Paul uses right here. And uh, incidentally, there are no English words at all in Scripture, in the original manuscripts, because the Bible wasn't written in English. I know that's a stunner for some people. But the word technically is there, and certainly the concept is there. It's a violent taking It's a sudden, swift taking. When when it happens, you know, Christ isn't gonna instant message us. He's not gonna say, hey, I'm gonna be in town on Wednesday. I could stop by, we go to heaven, you know, it'd be fun. No. He, He he's gonna come when he when he wills, and we will go. All right. And as we're taken, what will the aftermath of that be like? Can you imagine that? I don't know. But I, I, I would say if it happened today, if it happened today, uh, I think the world could be described as chaotic. Presumably you've got pilots who are believers who would no longer be piloting planes. I know you would have countless drivers that are Christians who, who suddenly would not be driving cars. In that day, there better be some kind of self-propelled Teslas going on in mass. Uh, what else could happen? There's a million scenarios. I would imagine that, that, that uh, hospital delivery rooms would be quite interesting. If you believe in the age of accountability, that, that infants, that children, when they, when they depart this world, that they're immediately in the presence of Christ. Well, I would assume that if that's true at the rapture, you're going to have ladies preparing to give birth and suddenly there's no baby. Can you imagine? The, 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 this is all conjecture, by the way. But but your mind can fathom in part what the world could be like. Uh, In in the book, in the movie Left Behind, Tim LaHaye's uh, uh, deal, there's a scene where there's a lady on an airplane, an elderly lady, and she summons an attendant, and she says, my husband's been missing for hours. I don't know where he went. She says, well, I'll try to find him. She says, well, please hurry. I'm afraid he might be cold. His clothes are still here. You know, so Tim LaHaye had this idea. In fact, I was kind of hoping to pull this off. I couldn't put it together, but I was kind of hoping that we could, kind of halfway through this session, turn the lights out, and and a bunch of you would be in on it, and then the lights would come up, and there'd just be clothing in your in your seat. <laughs> that would have been fun, I gotta tell you. But uh, maybe ten years from now, when nobody is still here. Um, you know, I saw a T-shirt once that read, in case of rapture, you can have this shirt, which I thought was clever. I mean, look, I don't know why God couldn't take your clothes too. He certainly could. Here's another possibility though, and this is a little somber. Imagine this. If, if the Lord tarries for a long time and, and we don't experience another spiritual revival in this world, it could be that the Christian population would dwindle and eventually become so infinitesimal that the few Christians who remain would be raptured and nobody would notice. That that has occurred to me. Could happen. Jesus said the last days will be like the days of Noah. Who got rescued in the days of Noah? Uh, Eight souls. That's it. And the rest of the world went to hell. Um, Maybe it will be that sparse again. I don't know. But here's what Jesus promised his disciples. He says in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now that's a great promise right there. I will come and take you to where I am. Where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven. So he will take us to be where he is. And as Christians are caught up in your notes, they are also transformed. They're transformed, meaning you will be changed. Now, if a limo shows up at your house and a guy gets out and says, I'm here to take you to the White House immediately. Now, let's just assume it's a president that you want to see. <laughs> From any era, all right? What would you be? You'd be like, well, I gotta I, I got change clothes. I gotta be presentable. And the guy would say, no, we gotta go right now. We got to go, you gotta go as you are. You'd be unsettled by that because you would want to be presentable. Well, guess what? When the Lord comes to retrieve you and take you to his house, he will make you presentable. He will make you presentable. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, behold, 51 rather, behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery is something as yet unrevealed. Here it is. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That has appeared on the wall of many a church nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Amen? (laughs) I love that you guys laugh at my dumb jokes. Anyway, I'm never leaving here. Um, How fast will this happen, that we will all be changed? Uh, Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed right the original manuscript we shall all be changed as in all the church in other words the bodies of the dead are going to be raised with new incorruptible bodies if you're alive you don't have a corpse to raise and so your existing body will be transformed into something beyond your wildest imaginations. Philippians 3.21 says, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Man, the older I get, the more I look forward to this. Every morning I wake up with a creak and a groan. I'm like, boy, I could use that new body today. Today would be a good day for that. What will those bodies be like? All right, I'm going to give you several points here in your notes. Our body will, in that day, be like Christ's body. It'll be like Christ's body. 1 John 3 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, wow, that's a cool phrase. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. When will we be like Him? When He appears because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. That informs a lot of our understanding. And that means, number two in your notes, our body will be literal. It will be a physical, literal body. When Christ was raised, was that a spiritual resurrection or a physical resurrection? That was a physical resurrection. He had a tangible body. There's a heresy that says that he was a phantom, that he was uh, non-corporeal, Okay, uh, it wasn't literal. Well, Scripture says otherwise. Luke twenty four thirty nine. see my hands and feet. This is after the resurrection. Uh, that it is I myself. This was part of the way that he proved that it. it was him. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We also see in the gospel he consumed food in that form. So we know he had a physical body. He wasn't an apparition. Uh, And then because we will be like him, third, uh, our body will be a sinless body. It will be a sinless body. God is gonna do a factory reset on you. You will not have this sinful body, this sinful condition that you have now. 1 Corinthians 15, 43, it is sown in dishonor. Speaking of your body, it is raised in glory. A body like Christ is a sin-free body. Uh, This collection of fallen molecules, this pile of fallen flesh that you're walking around in, uh, you're not gonna contend with that anymore. You're not gonna contend with your sin nature anymore. You're not gonna contend with your temptations anymore. Won't that be nice? You're not gonna have the physical needs that you currently have. And then number four in your notes, your body will be, oh, I love this, capable of superhuman feats. Capable of superhuman feats. Ah, imaginations are running wild now. How many of you have been watching superhero movies? That's like 50% of all movies now that come out. Uh, All of them are child's play compared to what your body will be like. Okay? The things you will be able to do, and no capes. Well, maybe not. Who am I to say? Maybe you'll wear a cape. You might be like, well, this is fun. I'll wear a cape. 1 Corinthians 15, 43, the second part, it says, it is sown in weakness, your body, but it is raised in power. You will have a powerful body. You'll be strong. You'll be fast. You'll be invulnerable. Your body won't wear out. It will be like Christ's body. And that means you can do the things that Christ could do in his resurrected state. What's one of those things? John 20, 26 Check this out. He's risen. Here it says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas, doubting Thomas, was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I love it. I love imagining that scene and the look on their faces. You know, he just, there he is. He just appears among them. He could come and go in the blink of an eye. He could pass through solid objects. He could move at superhuman speeds. This is the kind of body that we will have. And all without being exposed to gamma radiation or radioactive spiders or super soldier serum or any of that stuff. Isn't that great? And then number five in your notes, it's gonna be immortal and incorruptible. Immortal and incorruptible, meaning you will live forever and you will never age and you will never experience decay. Luke twenty thirty six. for they, speaking of the righteous, they cannot die anymore, those who have passed. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Uh, Lazarus was raised, but Lazarus died again. He was not raised permanently like you're going to be. Oh, well, he will be raised permanently again one day too. But this will be a different kind of resurrection from what he experienced. You will never die again. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable, and that's going to be very, very important because in your notes, number six, your body will also be able to access heaven and behold God, Okay? Uh, The body that is raised is imperishable. What do you got now? It's perishable. Okay? It's perishable. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You're going to need an imperishable body to inherit an imperishable status in the kingdom. Exodus 33:20 says, "But you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live." Okay? God had to shield Moses from the full glory, his full glory. He would only show Moses him from the back. He couldn't take him full on. Uh, Same with Elijah. You read in the Old Testament, God covers Elijah as he passes by him. He's shielding him. Why? Because the full brunt of the glory of God would be too much for your mortal body to take. It would incinerate you. It would turn you to dust. You need an imperishable body to behold him. Okay? The reason that you'll be able to see him as he is is because you will be like him. And he will enable that amazing. So here's the sequence of the rapture. Okay, just to recap, the dead in Christ they're going to rise first. Why do the dead rise first? John MacArthur says they get 6 feet further to go. <laughs> I don't know. I think he's joking, but you know, I listen to everything he says. Uh then number 2, we who are alive are then caught up. So that's pretty clear. So I don't know why anybody would deny a rapture. I mean, it's, is right there. Now, I don't care where you park that rapture. I mean, I do, but I, even if you say it's at the end of the tribulation, in the middle, whatever, from 1 Thessalonians 4, I think you gotta say there's a rapture. At some point, we're getting snatched, okay? But in your notes, the rapture also carries a promise I don't wanna overlook, and that is of being reunited with believing loved ones for how long? Forever forever. How many of you are thinking of somebody right now that you can't wait to see again who has departed this earthly plane? What a blessing that is going to be and it won't be temporary. You will be there forever. We who are alive and are left be caught up with them. With who? With the deceased believers. We will be with them again. I read this at every funeral I do because people need to hear it. When you mourn you need to hear this. You need to know it and if you don't know Jesus you really need to know it. Because that's the only hope you've got to see in that person again, and you'll meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. For always. It's going to be forever. Okay, let's talk about the timing of the rapture. When is the rapture? February 13th, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no dates. We don't do dates. And uh, no, in, in your notes, the exact time is unknown except to God the Father. He's the only one who knows. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Whoa. Nor the Son, but the Father only. Listen, if Jesus doesn't know, you don't know. And you're not gonna know. You're not gonna know. Many have attempted to figure this out. Uh, back in California, a few years back, several years back, had a guy back there named Harold Camping, and he had a following. He was a Christian radio personality, and he predicted that the rapture would happen on May 21st, 2011. And he previously predicted that the Lord would come back in 1994. And if you don't believe in miracles, uh, one miracle is that Harold Camping still had a following after 1994. <laughs> But uh, he failed magnificently one more time, and then he admitted he'd been sinful to predict, uh, to predict a date. And he's since gone on, presumably, to be with the Lord. Now he definitely knows that he didn't know. Um, better late than never. In 1988, there was a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. There was a follow-up book. It did not sell as many copies. Okay? <laughs> It's not for us to know. Uh, the disciples were with Christ on the Mount of Olives after the resurrection, right before he was about to ascend. They're up there. They're on the Mount of Olives. There's the Messiah. He's risen from the dead. They're remembering that they read the book of Zechariah, which says that the Messiah will be on the Mount of Olives, and from there he will proceed and he will establish his kingdom. And so they're asking him there. They're like, is it now? Or Is, is now the time? Is it now that you will, you will go forth? You will establish your kingdom? What does he say at Acts 1-7? He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Not for us to know. This will be the biggest surprise in the history of the world. God's gonna catch everybody off guard. Nobody will get this right. Nobody will get this right. And in your notes, the rapture will be soon. It's unknown to all but the Father, but we can know this, it will be soon. The last words spoken by Jesus in the entire Bible in the second to last verse of Revelation, Revelation twenty-two twenty, he says, surely I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. What does that mean? Well, by his standards... Uh, soon may not be the same as by our standards we're, we're pretty impatient when it comes to things like this with God a thousand years is as a day and so uh, in the scope of history it might seem like it's taken a long time but from God's perspective it will be soon I can tell you this the early church Peter Paul all those guys they all thought it would be any day any day and that is the right perspective to have we should have the same perspective as Peter, as Paul, as the early church. It is imminent. It is imminent. They, could, they believed that he would come back in their lifetime. It, it could be before I finish this next sentence, all right? It's going to be soon. But even if it doesn't happen for another 10,000 years, as far as Christ is concerned, it will be soon. It will be soon. And the point is that we not spend our time on frivolous things, that we, we recognize that we're not guaranteed another millisecond on this earth, we had better be about the task of telling people about Jesus Christ. Because tick-tock, time is running out, okay? So we gotta feel that urgency. And then in your notes, the rapture will be before, and this is my, my position, all right? Not everybody agrees with me, but I, I, wanna, I wanna teach this, that the rapture will be before the tribulation. Before the tribulation, okay? Uh, When you talk about the rapture, you must necessarily talk about the tribulation. What is the tribulation? It's that seven-year future period where God will finish his discipline of Israel and he will finalize his judgment on the unbelieving world. Now, let me give you some purposes of a pre-tribulation rapture. We're going back to 1 Thessalonians, but now we're in chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says... For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. Notice the language there. It's past, past tense. And then he says, You turned from idols to, to serve the living and true God. That is present. That's what they're doing now. They are serving the living and true God. They once worshiped idols. Now they're serving the living and true God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. Now we're in the future. We're talking about something that is future. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. And what is he coming to do? So we're waiting for the son who in the future will come from heaven. And what is the son coming to do? It says that he delivers us from the wrath to come. And so the first purpose of a pre-trib rapture is deliverance from wrath to come. That is the first purpose. It's a logical thing. It's a scriptural thing. According to 1 Thessalonians, Jesus is coming to deliver us, okay? Now, some say, well, what's that talking about, that deliverance, the wrath? Could that be deliverance from eternal condemnation, from sin? Uh, No, that's already done. He's not coming to deliver you from sin. You are already delivered from sin. That's done. It is finished. Remember that? Okay, to die, it's done. You've been delivered from that. If you've trusted Christ, he doesn't need to deliver you from that. Again, cross did that. This is deliverance from a very specific judgment. It's an escape from an impending judgment that is yet to befall the earth. The Christian is not looking forward to the tribulation. He's not looking forward to purgatory. He's not looking forward to the vengeance of the day of the Lord. The Christian is looking forward to the Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. Romans 8, Paul says that we wait with anticipation. We eagerly await him. We eagerly await. In Titus 2.13, he says we're waiting for our blessed hope. Our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What kind of hope is it? If we're going to endure the hell and the horror of the tribulation. In Romans 8, Paul says uh, uh, that we wait eagerly, right? We're not looking forward eagerly to the tribulation. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ because we're going to escape. What is it that we're going to escape? The day of the Lord, the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of testing that will befall the whole world, scripture says. The one that Jesus says has not occurred since the creation of the world or will again once it happens, okay? You and I go through tribulations, small t, this is the tribulation capital T. It's seven years of divine wrath. It involves natural disaster. It's gonna involve military disaster, national disaster, supernatural disaster, cosmic disaster, cataclysmic disaster, demonic disaster, apocalyptic disaster. Christ talks about it in detail. He says there's never been anything like it. This is not normal day-to-day issues of life with which we are all promised to contend. This is something more. This is on a different level level. That's number one, deliverance. Number two, we will be raptured before the tribulation for the allowance of the discipline of Israel and the judgment of the unrighteous. The purpose of a pre-trib rapture is to allow for Israel's discipline and the judgment of the unrighteous. What do you have to do in order to judge the unrighteous? You got to get the righteous out of the way. Okay? Somebody breaks into my house, burglar, threatens us with a weapon. I reach into my nightstand, pull out a gun, point it at him. Uh, but my wife is in between me and the burglar. What do I do? Do I shoot the burglar through my wife? No. I gotta get my bride out of the way. Christ is not gonna punish his bride in order to punish the unrighteous. Okay? He will remove the bride in order to judge them. 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. What does that sound like? Our being gathered together to him? That's the rapture. Concerning that, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. You follow Paul here? He's saying about that rapture, don't be concerned when you hear people were already in the tribulation. Don't be duped. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 3, Paul clearly considers in your notes the teaching that the church will go through the tribulation, he considers that to be unsound doctrine. Unsound doctrine, not heresy, but not sound, not correct, okay, okay? I don't want to throw the word heretic at somebody who thinks that we're going to go through the tribulation. That's not what I mean to say. Uh, If you hold that view, if you believe that the church will go through the tribulation, you will not go to hell for that. There's room for disagreement. I love you, but it seems clear to me that Paul did not consider that view to be correct. Seems clear to me. You could be wrong about a lot of stuff. And still be a Christian. Lots of Christians have believed that the rapture is at the end of the tribulation. I have lots of friends who feel that way. They're redeemed. I love them. I'll see them in heaven. And then they'll know I was right. Anyway. <laughs> he goes on, Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3. He says, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. What day? The day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, the man of lawlessness. Who is that? That's the Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. We've read that before. So you remember, that that's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. When he rises, there will be an enamored state on the earth concerning this man. People will fall all over themselves about him. They will be caught up in his every word. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11 says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. People on a global scale will be enamored with the unrighteousness of the Antichrist And so in your notes, 2 Thessalonians 2 really deals with this, the delusion of the unbelievers is initiated by God, wow, for the purpose of judgment. Whenever God permits blindness, spiritual blindness, that's a judgment. We're starting a new series this weekend on parables, and this concept will will appear in that study. But God will judge the world first by letting them follow this man. That will be judgment. That means the rise and the deception by the Antichrist on the earth is part of the judgment of this age. His very rise is a judgment. Romans 1 is all about God giving man over to his basest desires, letting man have what he wants. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, And you know... What is restraining him now? In other words, what is, re- what is restraining the Antichrist now? What is restraining the spirit of the Antichrist? You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. In other words, there's something holding him back. There's something holding back the rise of the Antichrist. Verse seven, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay? So there is a restrainer. Who is the restrainer? Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is the restraint of evil. Okay? The restrainer of lawlessness, in your notes, is the Holy Spirit manifested greatly through the church the church has the church been a force for good in the world historically yes has the church have the people of jesus christ uh brought about the restraint of evil in many ways yeah there's a morality that is innate in 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 the heart of the the regenerate person And the church, we often reference slavery in here, the abolition of slavery in America. Those people were all born-again believers. They were devout Christians that spearheaded that effort. And we see that around the world. And there will come a day when those people will be gone. And that's not to say that the Holy Spirit will be totally absent. God God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. So I don't believe the Spirit will be completely gone from the earth. But the principal mechanism by which the Spirit restrains evil is the church. And they will be removed. Okay? Now let me give you some reasons to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And the first one is this. I got a boogie here if I'm going to make it, but Christ promised to prepare a place and return for us contrasts sharply with the tribulation. There is a stark difference between the Lord's coming for his own and the tribulation. So John 14, verse 1, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. I I love that phrase. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so. What I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself where I am. There you may be also. We've said this before. Where is He? He's in heaven. So when He comes to take us, where will we go? We will go to heaven. Okay? So it's not at the end of the tribulation that we go to heaven, it's at the beginning. Because what happens at the end? Of the tribulation, we're going to be on the earth as we shall see. That's when the kingdom happens, okay? Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, after informing the Thessalonians about the Lord's return, Paul will say the, the following words. He will say, he says, he says about the coming of the Lord, uh, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Well, if we, if we have to go through the tribulation prior to his return, That's cold comfort right there. The only way that the words encourage one another with these words make sense is if Christ takes us from the earth, where we avoid the tribulation. Uh, He's not saying you're going to suffer unspeakable horror. You're going to watch those around you die violently in bloody fashion. You're going to witness supernatural cosmic calamity, massive death on a scale never before seen. Encourage one another with these words. doesn't make any sense. No, no. This wrath is not for the bride. We've already been through our trial, our trial, our trial has been the last 2,000 years. Okay, we have been. We know persecution, persecution and judgment, not the same, not the same. The tribulation is judgment. The church throughout history has never once, never once been the object of God's wrath. Mm-mm. He has judged Israel. He judges other nations, unbelieving nation. He does not judge his bride. He does not. Number two, the rapture is a mystery. Unrevealed until Paul's letters. The tribulation is prophesied in the Old Testament. We see the tribulation. We read Daniel. You saw it in there, okay? You don't see the rapture in the Old Testament. What else is absent in the Old Testament? The church, contrary to some of my good Reformed friends, the church in Israel, not the same. Two different peoples. You don't see the church in the Old Testament. You don't see the rapture in the Old Testament. Coincidence? No, because the rapture is for the church, okay? The rapture is for the church. Number three in your notes, scripture describes Christ's return as imminent, as imminent. You know what that means? That means it can happen at any moment, at any moment. Surely I come quickly, okay? Okay? Uh, Only a pre-tribulational rapture supports the doctrine of imminence. When Jesus says, surely I am coming soon, at the end of Revelation, the word for soon is the Greek word takchu, takchu, which means without unnecessary delay. Without unnecessary delay. It does not mean immediately. It means there's nothing that needs to happen before I return. That's what it means. Nothing necessarily will prevent my coming. There's nothing on the timetable of history yet to be accomplished before I come back. And in case you're wondering, if you read our doctrinal statement on the Lamb's Chapel website, we hold as a church to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It was there before I got here, which is one reason I'm here, because I agreed with that. Uh, The imminent coming. So, by necessity, to believe in the imminent coming of Christ is to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the Lord uh, by the Lord of the Church, and so we're going to look at those various views in just a moment. But number four in your notes, so I can I can hurry up here a little bit. The second coming of Christ appears to be in two phases, which I've already discussed. Two phases, and they're described very differently. Okay. Um, I didn't I'm, I meant to get you a chart that compared uh, the first phase with the second phase, okay, the rapture and the revelation. And I didn't get it to you, but we will we can upload that to the YouTube channel to the website. So I can offer that to you. But basically it contrasts it. So the coming for the church, the rapture, it's gonna occur in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, when he comes to establish his kingdom at the end of the tribulation, every eye will see him. That's what Revelation 1 says. Uh, the rapture, there is no judgment on the earth at that time. No judgment on the earth. After the, the, the glorious appearing, when he comes the second time, the earth is judged right then. Uh, there is no warning with the tribulation, it is imminent. Uh, for, for the return, the revelation of Christ at the end of the tribulation, there are multiple signs that precede his coming. You cannot say that that will be imminent. There are a lot of things that will have to happen prior to that. Uh, at the rapture, he comes for his own. At the revelation, he comes with his own. Uh, at the rapture, he comes in the air. You'll notice, you read 1 Thessalonians, he never touches down. He never comes to the earth. At the revelation of Christ at the end of the trib. He comes down to the earth, touchdown, all right? And then he does battle with Antichrist, and then he establishes his kingdom. Uh, The passages of the rapture, there's no mention of Satan whatsoever. The passages about the revelation of Christ, Satan is bound, and won't that be a good day? At the rapture, the tribulation commences shortly thereafter. We don't know how soon, but sometime after, at the revelation of Christ, after the tribulation, it's the millennial kingdom that will soon commence. So there is a number of differences. And the number five in your notes, distinction between Israel and the church demands a pre-tribulational rapture. If you believe that the church and Israel are different, and I do, you must believe in a pre-trib rapture. Why? Because, as I pointed out before, the tribulation is about Israel it revolves around Israel. It's the 70th week of Daniel. What was the prophecy? Gabriel said, Daniel, this prophecy concerns your people, your holy city, Israel, the Jews, Jerusalem, all right? What is it called in the Old Testament? The tribulation is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Who was Jacob? He was a patriarch that God changed his name to what? Israel, okay? The people descend from him. So we're not talking about an event in the tribulation that centers around the church in any way. It's not about the church. It's about Israel. Different people, different focus. Of course, you've got the unbelieving world uh, in there who who must be judged, but the church is neither Israel nor the unbelieving world. Remember, we live in the gap. We live in between week 69 of Daniel's prophecy and week 70. God has pushed pause. We are living in the pause. We're living in the gap, okay? Okay? The church was not a part of the first 69 weeks because that prophecy was not about us. The church is not in the 70th week either, okay? Also, I would point this out. This is kind of interesting. God did not allow Israel's laws and ordinances to be incorporated into the church age. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that we meet, uh, we, don't, we, don't, we are not required to meet on Saturday? Okay. Have you noticed that we are not sacrificing, you know, bulls and goats and lambs up here? Have you noticed that we're not, you know, bound to stay away from Carolina barbecue and bacon and all that good stuff? You notice that? Okay. We, we we've not incorporated Israel's ordinances into this age. What happens during the seventieth week? They're going to build a temple, and they're going to resume blood sacrifice unto the Lord. So those ordinances are going to make. A comeback, okay? So God does not use or bless two different programs on the earth at the same time. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite reasons here in your notes is number six. The church is not mentioned as being on the earth in Revelation 4 through 22, Okay? Uh, The common New Testament term for church is the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia, it's used 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. After that, it's only used one more time at the very end, Revelation 22, verse 16, when John returns to addressing the first century church. You got nearly 19 chapters with no mention of the church whatsoever. What is the focus of all of those chapters? The events of the tribulation. You got all tribulation, no church. It would frankly be remarkable and totally out of the norm for John to shift from detailed instructions to the church, which he gave in the first three chapters, and then go absolute radio silence on the church during the tribulation if we were meant to go through it. Don't you think we'd get some instructions about how to do and how to be and all that during the tribulation if we were going to be here for that? He was very detailed in the first three chapters. And then during all those events, we don't come up once. Revelation 4, verse 1, it says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. After this, come up here. A lot of scholars believe that's the rapture. That's the rapture. Is that a cry of command? Come up here. Huh? Lazarus, come forth. Come up here. Revelation 4 4. Now John is transported into heaven. It says around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. You've never seen these guys before this moment right here. They've been summoned to heaven. This is their first appearance. There are 24 of them. 24 in the Old Testament is the number of the priesthood. We have a priesthood of the believer, okay? These guys represent God's priesthood. They are elders. Elders represent an enormous multitude. They represent a larger community. We got elders here at the Lamb's Chapel. They represent the entire body. That's the the form of governance that we have. It's a biblical form of government. These are elders. They represent a larger body, as in the church. They're seated. They're seated. That means their work is done. They're clothed in white. That means they are pure. They're holy. They have crowns. Golden crowns. The Greek word is stephanos. You know what a stephanos is? That's what they gave the victor at the athletic games, the ancient games. Whoever won would get the victor's crown, the stephanos, these guys have run the race. they finished the race. They're victorious. Who are they? They're the church. They're the church. Why are they there? They've been raptured there. They've been summoned there. What do they do? They do what you and I will be doing In heaven, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We see them doing what they're doing in heaven prior to the events of the tribulation, and so will you and I. And then number seven in your notes, a rapture is meaningless if it follows the tribulation. Because what's the point? What's the point of a rapture? If God's gonna preserve us through the tribulation, then why do we need a rapture at the end of that? Huh? I mean, to be like, oh, now you show up. <laughs> really? I mean, some would argue maybe that he comes at the end to, to, to uh, uh, help us avoid the wrath of God at Armageddon, but I mean, if you just helped us survive the tribulation, why couldn't you just sustain us through Armageddon as well? Uh, in Matthew 25, Christ talks about the, a specific judgment that follows the tribulation. It's called the judgment of the, of the sheep and the goats, And it's where Christ will gather all the Gentiles that have survived the tribulation and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Well, that's a pointless judgment if you have a rapture right there. It doesn't make any sense. And if we're raptured at the end of the tribulation, well, who is it that populates the millennial kingdom that follows? Because that begins after the Lord's return at the end of the tribulation. We already know, based on 1 Thessalonians 4, that we're going to heaven at the rapture. Uh, he never sets down on the earth then, so if he's gonna establish his kingdom, first of all, we don't see him land on the earth at the rapture, and if he raptures us, we know we're in heaven, we're not on the earth, so who's gonna populate the kingdom? Some, some people say, well, we go up, but then we come back down. Okay, so we're gonna do a Yui. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I would also add that a rapture and an immediate return for the kingdom leaves no time for the judgment seat of Christ That's the judgment of all believers, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all of that. Okay, I'm just going to quickly leave you with some other views here. There are other views on this, and I don't want to be remiss. I'm going to show you what they are. There's one called in your notes, and I've already given you the notes, so you don't have to write anything. You're welcome. So there's something called the partial rapture, okay? which is the joke that every pastor makes when a lot of people are missing on a holiday weekend at church. Oh, it must be a partial rapture. Um. The basic idea behind a partial rapture view is that only those believers who are watching, who are waiting, who are prepared for his return, they will be found worthy to escape the tribulation. They'll be taken, okay? Uh, that's, That's kind of the view, that he'll take some but not all. Now, those with this view also hold that there are multiple opportunities to get raptured along the way. Uh, you could get raptured at, you know, right, right before, you could get raptured during, uh, that there will be an opportunity for, for people during the tribulation to get raptured, and then there will be an opportunity at the end of the tribulation, uh, or, or perhaps rather at the close of the millennium, there will be a resurrection of all those who missed the previous rapture. So basically, the, if you can't decide if you're pre, pre, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, this is the view for you. Here's the problem with it. It misunderstands the meaning and the significance of the death of Christ. Uh, It becomes sort of a Protestant version of purgatory in a sense by saying that some believers aren't fit for heaven. Uh, It denies the unity of the body of Christ. You don't fragment the body. We are one. We just went through Ephesians. We're one. There's no Jew, no Greek, uh, no slave, no free. We're all one in Christ, one Lord, one God, one Father of all. Uh, You know, Christ isn't going to come down and go, okay, you're going with me. You're staying put. I'll be back. Maybe if you mind your P's and Q's, I'll get you. You know, and it it confuses teaching on rewards. I mean, the judgment of Christ would come right after the rapture. We don't have multiple judgments for believers. There's one judgment for believers. And uh, we also know, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we will all be changed. We will all be changed. Are there some... Christians who are maybe not as mature as other Christians? There are. Are they going to get raptured along with you? Yes. Yes. You're not super Christian overnight. Not everybody grows at the same rate. There are going to be people who are more mature than others. We will all be changed in a moment. The, the mid trib rapture in your notes, the basic idea here is that the church will be raptured at the midpoint, which would be how many years in? Three and a half years in out of those seven years they don't see, the mid-trib view does not see the 70th week of Daniel as the tribulation. They only see uh, the last half of week 70 as the tribulation, okay? So it's not really a mid-trib view if you think about it. It's kind of a variation on a pre-trib view. It's just their tribulation is only three and a half years. Isn't that weird? Kind of strange when you think about it. Here's the problems It has the loss of the concept of imminence, that the Lord could return at any moment. So if if Daniel's 70 week begins, then you know in three and a half years, that's when the Lord's going to come back. Well, that's not imminent. That's not at any moment. Uh, The midpoint of the tribulation is actually marked by the breaking of Antichrist's covenant with Israel, he makes that covenant at the beginning. Of the seven years he breaks it at the midpoint the midpoint is not characterized by the rapture if it were don't you think daniel would have mentioned that seems like that would be an important detail but he didn't by the by if you say that the tribulation doesn't happen until the midpoint uh, we've been through a lot of mess in that first three and a half years there's a whole lot of calamity and destruction that would have already happened at that point. So I don't know what they think we're missing out on here. In addition, Matthew 24 says that the Son of Man is coming at an hour we don't expect, right? And so if you apply that here, it doesn't doesn't really work. Then you've got, of course, the uh, post- tribulational view and that's the most common alternative to the pre-trib view and of course this is that the the rapture and the the second coming is one single event happens at the end of the tribulation the church will be on the earth for the full seven years until the Lord comes back there's a lot of variations within post-tribulationalism I don't have time to get into them all but you know I've given you some pushback on this but here's an objection if the church is raptured at the end as I said who, who is it that populates the kingdom I would also say this conflicts with the imminence view. If you know we have to go through the trib, then once that trib starts, you've got to wait seven years. That's not an imminent return of Christ. What a lot of post-tribbers say about the pre-trib view is they say, well, show me in the Bible where it says that the church won't go through the tribulation. You show me. You show me where it shows a pre-trib rapture. And what they're looking for is something explicit. And I freely admit there's not an explicit verse. There's a lot of doctrines that we hold to that doesn't have one flagship verse that says, thus says the Lord, da, da 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 And they say, show me. And to that I say, will you show me where it says the church will go through the tribulation? What I can show you is there's nearly 19 chapters of Revelation that describe the tribulation and we're not mentioned in there Once. So the greater argument from silence is that the church will go through the tribulation. And so it's hard to prove what's not there. Hard to prove what's not there. And then you got the pre-Wrath Rapture, and the basic view there is that only the only the, the, the trumpet and bowl judgments of the tribulation. We didn't walk through all the events of the trib, but There are some very severe judgments in the tribulation and those are what are believed to be the the real wrath that we are delivered from. And so they say the church is gonna be on the earth uh, past the midpoint, Uh, we're on the hook, we're not gonna go through the bowl judgments, that's the really bad stuff and they are bad, but we're on the hook for the seal judgments, we'll be raptured right before the trumpet and bowl judgments. Here's the objection, The, the wrath is not limited to trumpet in bold judgments because it's clear from Scripture the entire seven-year period is a time of God's wrath. The argument they make is the, there's a word for wrath that they're looking for and they pin all their hopes on that and they say, uh, we're spared from this particular Greek word that, that is translated as wrath. My response to that is uh, Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God. And we've described what that is. What is the wrath of God really? It's giving man what man wants in the darkened state of his heart. And we've already read that God sends a strong delusion. That is the wrath of God. He gives the people what they want. The rise of Antichrist is the beginning of the, 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 the playing out of God's wrath upon the earth. And that is the wrath that characterizes the entire seven-year Period. So I don't, I don't think we're going to be around for any part of these seven years. And that's enough for tonight. I do have, and you might notice on your notes there, there are uh, some objections to the pre-trib view. And what I think I might do, I might throw those into the, the uh, Q&A for next week. Uh, that should be fun. So if you've got questions, we encourage you to submit those questions at the lambschapel.org. But guys, this has been such a pleasure for me. Thank you for your passion for the word of God. Appreciate you all. Yeah. Let me pray for you, and then I've got one more little announcement I want to make, and I'll let you go home, all right? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would promise to come again to take us where you are, God. We cling to that. We trust in that. We are not intimidated. We are not fearful. We rest in you. And we give you all the glory. Thank you for these ravenous souls who hunger for the word. Bless them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.